You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, our new year is off to a great start. Who can stop us when we're praying like that? Did you catch that corporate prayer together? Listen again to these words of our great hope. We launch our bark on the unknown waters of this year with you, O Father, as our harbor, you, O Son, at our helm, you, O Holy Spirit, filling our sails. I hope that you're capturing all of the rich language of the prayers that we've been praying together through the Valley of Vision because they have immense, immense meaning for our lives and for our church. And we're delighted to start 2023 in this way. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. We are coming very close to the end of the book of Revelation, and then we'll be moving into an extended series, the next preaching series in the Epistle of Joy, the book of Philippians. And so we're very much looking forward to that. But for today, we want to continue bringing in this new year in a uniquely gospel-centered, uniquely hopeful, purposeful kind of way. I'm reminded every new year, as we think about resolutions or goals and directions for our lives, that there really are two ways to see our lives and therefore two ways to live. Those two ways have somewhat been kind of immortalized by the words of Forrest Gump from that classic movie. If you remember this line, he says, I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental-like on a breeze. In the movie, that's symbolized by that feather that kind of floats along throughout the movie in the beginning credits and then at the end and all throughout. And it really does shape the two ways that people tend to think about life. We think about either life as just happenstance and we're all sort of floating along or For us as Christians who know our Bibles well and we know that our God is sovereign, he is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He is in absolute control and he is guiding his people to their destination that we live with a destiny. And that destiny is what gives our life ultimate meaning. It's what gives us ultimate confidence and hope and joy as we begin a new year and no matter what we may face in the coming days. We know that every year brings a mixture of sorrows and rejoicing. We know that we're likely to face different kinds of each of those. There will be really high moments of celebration. There will be goals reached. There will be accomplishments. There there may be in our families new births, new relationships, new opportunities. And there may also be sorrow. There may be loss. There may be goals or accomplishments unrealized and all other kinds of difficulties and losses and crosses. But in the midst of it all, we are reminded in this text this morning that we have an incredible destiny set before us. And it is one that God has guaranteed by his grace through his sovereign hand in the work of his son. And therefore, we want to keep our eyes looking forward, knowing what the days ahead will hold for us. 
So this morning, what we simply want to do in these verses is to gain some directions for the new year by considering the future that God has planned for us. And we're going to do that this morning by focusing mainly on verse 6 of Revelation chapter 20. But before we look at verse 6, let's go ahead and frame out where we are in the chapter and what is going on at this time so that we really can make the most digging in to verse 6 and to take these, these directions to heart as we move forward into a new year together as a church. Let's look first at verses 1 through 5 and notice some key things that frame out where we are in the coming history of the world. John says this in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss. Now, in the book of Revelation, the abyss is, is, the word is used to to signify a, a kind of holding cell. It's a temporary place. It's not the ultimate place of condemnation, which is the, the lake of fire and brimstone, but the abyss is the temporary place. And here is this angel with a great chain in his hand. In verse 2, he says, he took hold of the dragon. And we know who that is from our reading of the book of Revelation. John reminds us here, it's the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. We refer to that, of course, as a millennium, but in theological terms, as the millennial reign of Christ. Now, there's lots of debates about the order of things in the book of Revelation and how things will unfold. And while I don't think that the Bible is is incredibly explicit about that, I think the clearest way to understand what will happen is that at a coming time of God's choosing, there will be a great tribulation. And following that tribulation, then there will be this return of Christ in which through the work of this angel, the devil will be taken hold of and uh, imprisoned in the abyss. For a thousand years, Christ then on the earth will reign with his people, which we'll read about more in a moment. And then he goes on and he says, he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So then after that thousand-year reign of Christ with his people on earth, it seems that the devil will be released from the abyss, and as we'll see in the coming verses in the coming weeks, that he will then go throughout the world and gather together those who remain God's enemies, deceiving them then and gathering them together for a great war that will happen and be the ultimate end that will then bring about the, the, the final judgment of the world, leading then to the new heavens and the new earth. But before that, look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. It seems that these are believers who who have survived through the tribulation. Here they are with Christ during this thousand years. He goes on and says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands, and they came to life, a great resurrection will happen, and reunited with Christ for a thousand years. Here, as we just read, these are martyrs, those who had given their lives for Christ. They are then brought to life again and reunited with Jesus. And then it says in verse 5 that the rest of the dead, those who will then go to judgment, they did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That's that final judgment. And so therefore, this is the first resurrection. 
So we have that context to understand, looking forward, what is going to happen. But then we want to see this morning in verse 6, what directions can we take from this future destiny? Because verse 6 is all about destiny. It is about the destiny of God's people, those here that we've read about that have made it through the tribulation, and they are there with Christ in the thousand-year reign on the earth, those who have been raised, who were martyred, died beforehand, and now they're reunited, that being the destiny of those who have faith in Christ. What will that destiny be like? And what does it mean for us today and in 2023 and the days to come? Let's consider this in just three simple truths or three simple parts. First, we want to see that those who belong to Christ have a destiny of ultimate happiness. Notice what John says in verse 6. He says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What I want us to do first is just to key in on the very first word of verse 6. And that word is the word blessed or blessed. Now in scripture, when this word is used in this context and in this way, it's very clear that a natural translation of it and meaning, what is the heart of the word blessed? What does it mean to be blessed in Christ? It means to be happy. This word blessed and happy are the same word. And that helps to give us some real clarity on on what would it mean to be these people in the coming days? What is it like to belong to Christ? Who are we? We are first happy. We see this in other places, many other texts of scripture, but here it just first in Psalm 1, 1 through 3 where this word comes up again. Blessed, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his happiness is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. This person who is in Christ, who delights in Christ and his word, is characterized fundamentally as someone who is happy, made happy in the best of all possible ways. In the depths of his very soul, he's filled with a kind of happiness that surpasses all that would happen in life, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of loss, there yet is happiness, coexisting at the same time. This is one of those great things that all people have in common. Even in spite of the fall, God in his sovereign wisdom has maintained that every person in the universe is hardwired for this thing called happiness. In fact, it is the reason for everything that you and I do. Everything that you do is geared toward naturally being happy. It's something that every person wants. This is not a new thought. This is a thought that has been handed down to us down through the generations, through the eras of church history, of those who understood the Lord and people and his word most clearly. Listen to just a few. 
the great preacher J.C. Ryle, happiness is what all mankind want to obtain. The desire for it is deeply planted in the human heart. The Puritan, Thomas Boston, we typically don't think of Puritans as being very happy people, but in fact, they excelled at true happiness in Christ, for Christ, and because of Christ. He says, consider what man is. He is a creature that desires happiness and cannot but desire it. The desire of happiness is woven into his nature and cannot be eradicated. It is as natural for him to desire it as it is to breathe. Finally, Jonathan Edwards, there is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness, and it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. These two words, blessed and happy, are interchangeable, and we are reading about the destiny of those who know Christ, that they will be, and they are today, happy. They are blessed, filled with gladness, and can be at all times. There's a little temptation, though, isn't there, when we hear this kind of language about happiness because of the way that our culture has used the word or, or understood that concept that we, we want to try to make this distinction. Sometimes you hear it's a distinction between happiness and joy. Well, happiness is just that, that ordinary kind of thing that happens in the world. It's not the real thing. The real thing is joy. Christians know joy. They're not happy people. They're joyful people. We're trying to solve some kind of conflict we have with the idea of being happy, but I think ultimately it's because we're struggling to understand how could Christ make me happy even in the depths of loss, even in the midst of sorrow. But if we want to know how, we must simply look to God himself because he is eternally happy. Even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of loss, His happiness reigns supreme. These voices that we have just heard from about this this hardwired happiness in our hearts do not make that kind of distinction between joy and happiness because the Bible doesn't make that distinction between joy and happiness. The Bible says, happy and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The Bible says, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Therefore, I think that the best way that we could begin 2023 is a reminder of the great pursuit of happiness in Christ that he has given to us by grace through his good news. We can do that by even being reminded of one of those, those, those great documents of our faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, begins with this question. Many of you know it by heart. What is the chief end of man? Do you remember the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But knowing what we now know from the Bible about the hardwired pursuit of happiness in us, and that actually that happiness in Christ is the way that we glorify him, we may even say, what is the chief end of man? 
the chief end of man in 2023 for our church, for our lives, for our people, for our families, may it be to glorify God by enjoying him. That is the way that you glorify God, by maximizing all of the happiness that you have in Christ, for Christ, and because of Christ. That's the kind of happiness that we're after. In fact, we could even think of it this way, as it's been put in that really what's become now kind of a modern famous mantra, God is most glorified in us when we are most happy in him or satisfied in him. Why is that? It's because when we are happy and satisfied in God, we are most like him. Because as I said earlier, God is the happiest being in the universe. He is eternally happy at all times, every day, every year. Psalm 115.3 puts it very plainly. Listen to this. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. How can he be the ultimate happy being in the universe? Because he has all that he needs, all the sovereignty, all the control to do all that he needs to do to have what he wants, which is ultimately what it means to be happy, isn't it? It is to have what your heart desires. And God in heaven always has what his heart desires. He is the God of happiness. We believe in this God who is sovereign, wise, and good, and he can do everything needed to bring about his will. Therefore, for God, every year is the year of happiness. But answer this. Is every year for you the year of happiness? Is every year for you encapsulated in a pursuit of God-like, God-glorifying happiness in which you are on a, a wild pursuit to know the happiness of God, to be satisfied with Him and Him alone. Not satisfied the way that we talk about finishing a meal when you've had enough to eat and that's enough, I'm satisfied, I've had enough, but satisfied as in having your heart delighted by the God of the universe, that you couldn't want for any more because you're overflowing with gladness, knowing who he is and what he's done for you and what he plans for you. This is the kind of year that we want to have as a church, one that glorifies God by enjoying him forever. So the first use of this text or application that you can write down if you're taking notes is this, in 2023, Make it a top priority to be happy in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. Make 2023 the year of happiness pursued and happiness captured because of what Jesus has done for us. But that's not all that verse 6 says about these people in the future what verse 6 says about us in the future. It also says that these people who are a part of the first resurrection are happy and holy. 
Here's another key word for us to know, and perhaps one that we, we know pretty well. We hear that a lot in Scripture. We talk about that as Christians. We strive after or also pursue, in the words of Jerry Bridges, pursue holiness. We're pursuing the, the holiness that glorifies God. What does it mean to be holy? Simply put, it means to be set apart. It means to be made pure, consecrated. Now, in these verses that we've just read in verses 1 through 5, Notice what we read in verse 4. It's a striking description of what it means for these people to be set apart. It says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. And because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. This is an incredible picture of what it means to be set apart. Now, it does not mean that every person who is set apart by Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, made happy in Christ, will will know this kind of end of their earthly lives, but some will, some have. But it does mean that this is the kind of, of extreme consecration that Jesus Christ brings into the lives of his people. They're not set apart in any old, ordinary way. It's not simply that they change their clothes or they just change their vocabulary and they use different words. It is that they are consecrated, set apart, made holy, down to the very depths of their souls, of what they're willing to to do and be for Christ because he has been their heart-happying treasure. He has made them so happy that they, in in a way, delight to give themselves away for the gospel. They delight, as as these did, as others, Jesus' own disciples did, and many others throughout church history, we read about them delighting to give their lives away because they have been made satisfied and happy in Him. This is the picture of what it means to be set apart. To be set apart from the rest of the world And this is what God has done. If you are here today or on the live stream and you know Christ, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son by faith in him. You have heard the good news of what Jesus Christ did for sinners like us. And by an incredible work of grace, your heart was made alive to that good news. Your eyes opened, your ears unstopped. You heard it, you see Christ for who he is and you come to him and fall before him. You have been set apart. You are the kind of person who will take part in the first resurrection. You are the kind of person who has been gifted an ultimate kind of happiness and blessedness. And you are the kind of person that the Bible says is holy. Not simply because of things that we do. It's not because we've set ourselves apart. But it's that God has set us apart. He has made a special place for his people and he has secured them there. He is keeping them there. As I think about this concept of God setting apart, I'm reminded of a a really enjoyable trip that our family took a number of years ago. My sister and her family were living uh, right by Yale University and so we went to New Haven, Connecticut to visit them and had an opportunity to actually go to Yale and walk around and see this incredible historic institution Now, I was interested in Yale University for reasons that most of the people there don't even know about, and that's because it's the place of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan. 
It's where there is so much history of his life and work and ministry all around. In fact, there are buildings. It was one of the most amazing things to me. There are buildings named after him, but I would imagine that most of the students at Yale University have probably have no real idea or appreciation maybe for Jonathan Edwards and what he has done, what he means to us, especially as an ambassador of happiness in Christ as we're talking about today. And it was amazing while we were at Yale University to go to the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library on the campus of Yale University. You should look it up sometime later today when you're lounging around with your phone. Take a look at this building. It's this square, boxy kind of glass building on campus. It is beautiful architecture. But when you go inside, there is an incredible, unforgettable display of books and manuscripts of all periods of history. They're all preserved and cared for. You can't just go in there and access them. You're not going in there and pulling it off the shelf. There, of course, are things like the works of Jonathan Edwards, which I don't know how many people recognize when they're in there. But there's also the Gutenberg Bible, one of the earliest books that was produced with movable type in Europe in the 1400s. There are, I think, 43 copies there, and they're all set apart. They're highly valued because of their aesthetic and artistic qualities, as well as the historic significance of them. They are set apart and revered. This is the picture of what God has done for his people. This is the picture of his coming kingdom. It is like this rare book manuscript library. He has set apart his people and he will keep them. He values them. He, in a way, reveres them. They belong to him. That's what it means to be holy. And because of what Christ has done for us, we look forward to this coming day in which we too will be recognized as happy and as holy. And those two things will forever be hand in hand. Notice that here in verse 6, these two, happiness and holiness, are inseparable for the Christian. And I made a huge, huge error in my earlier days as a Christian and pastor, because in a good intention to try to encourage people to live holy lives, to give up the things of this world, and to, and to seek ultimate holiness and a place in God's kingdom, I said things like, you know, God is more concerned about your holiness than he is your happiness. Well, that's a colossal failure. Because the Bible doesn't say anything like that. Certainly in verse 6, look, they go right together. Happiness and holiness are inextricably linked. In fact, they fuel one another. You cannot have one without the other. God is not more interested in one over the other. He is interested in your life and mine in both. In this coming year, the happier you and I are in Christ the holier we will be. And it also makes sense in the reverse that the holier you and I are in Christ, the happier in Christ we will be. Both in prosperity and in loss, we see these two going together. Remember our public reading text this morning. I said that it would accent the focus of our sermon, and it does here. James 1, 2 through 4 were the verses where James says, Consider it all joy or happiness, 
My brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, this is one of the great conundrums for, for probably all of us, is our experience of trials often doesn't bring to us a reminder of joy and happiness that we have in Christ. It tends to steal away our attention. We get focused on the trial and we lose sight of the treasure who is Christ caring for us. But he says, when you encounter various trials, consider it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, that God is working in the midst of even these troubles to do two important things. To make you happy and to make you holy. That's why he goes on and says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's holiness language. That's happiness language. If you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that's the pinnacle of holiness and happiness. There could be nothing better. There could be nothing more satisfying. There could be nothing more beautiful. Therefore, we have another direction from this text for this year moving forward. I hope that you'll write it down, put it on your list. As you are being happy in this pursuit to capture happiness in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, be holy. How can you be holy? What does it mean to be holy and set apart? It means to happily submit to the happy, holy God we have come to know in the gospel. That might be worth saying again. To be holy means that we are happily submitting to the happy, holy God we have come to know in the gospel. That, I think, means that we're going to have to move down and up. We're going to have to move down in happiness and holiness to establish what is the foundation of our happiness. You might ask these questions uh, maybe today if you're still thinking about the coming year and resolutions, directions for change. A key question we all must answer at this time of the year and every day moving forward really is this. What is it really that makes you most happy? What would you say is the blank for if only, I would be really happy. You see, those kinds of questions get us down to the foundation of who we are as people. Who are you? What makes you tick? What makes you happy? We've got to go down and we've got to build a foundation with God's help so that he is the one who makes us happy. But also we have to move up, don't we? We have to push up, up into the air to pursue the highest happiness and holiness that we can in Christ. To be reaching up to him as our, our great example, the Lord and Savior himself, who is perfectly happy and perfectly holy all the time. We want to be like him. We want to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what this means. Therefore, those are some directions that we can take this year, even in this coming week, to think about our lives. How can we be holy in Christ, happily submitting to him? But finally, here's the last truth that we see about our future destiny, which is controlling our here and now. Notice what John says in verse 6 moving forward. He talks about those who are blessed and those who are holy, those who 
have a part in the first resurrection. And the reason that they are so happy is because the second death has no power over them. But instead, instead of being condemned, he says something very interesting. It's interesting to me because of the language that he uses. Remember that when you read the Bible, the language is intentional. It's not just plucked out of the air. God, in his sovereign inspiration of those who wrote it, is dictating to them the kinds of words that they should use to communicate most clearly what God intends. And here, John says, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Priests. That really takes our attention into the Old Testament where we have read about priests before. What are priests doing? Well, they are worship attendants in the Old Testament. What are they known for? Well, here's at least three characteristics that characterize priests in the Bible. One, we've already heard, they are set apart for service. In the Old Testament, in the ministry of the tabernacle, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, those who were priests were set apart for that work. They were identified. We carry that meaning forward as we already have in understanding what will it mean for us to be, quote, priests of God and of Christ, set apart for service. But there are also worshipers who are communing with God. We know that we are each uh, belonging to a priesthood of believers, that we have direct access to God as priests. We go directly to the Father through Christ by His Holy Spirit, and we worship and commune with Him in that way. But third, perhaps this is the one to highlight the most at this first part of a new year, what does it mean for us to be priests of God and of Christ now? What will it mean in the coming year Well, also what priests do, they are set apart for service, they worship and commune with God, but they busy themselves with sacred activities. That is a very clear description of what priests do, busy themselves with sacred activities. Priests are busied because they make every activity sacred. These who live this way, these who will live this way in the coming days, these who live this way now, see every moment of life as a sacred moment, a moment for happiness, a moment for holiness, whether killing sin or delighting in good, they make themselves busy. They are busy little bees. That's an interesting cliche, isn't it? There's a reason for that. If you've ever seen bees at work in their hive, they are incredibly, incredibly busy, all of them. They're constantly tending to the honeycomb, fanning their wings to keep the nest cool. They do take frequent breaks, but they are ever working, focused on the mission at hand. Even the queens at the very center are busy. Even they, being somewhat immobile, are laying more than a thousand eggs every day, busily working. I think God has placed images like that in the world to be a reminder to us of what we are to be in Christ. Busily, because of grace, working, giving our lives, busying ourselves with the things that are most important, the most sacred, 
And that is what it means to be a priest of God in Christ. Each of us, individual priests together in a priesthood. This is a call for focus. In this time, in the coming days, there will be incredible focus by those who take part in the first resurrection. They will have clear vision of what they are about, of what their purpose in life is. Well, that's a direction for us to take into our own lives today, that we would be happy, holy priests of God, all of us, men and women, every believer, focused and giving ourselves cheerfully to the work that God has placed before us so that we can be happy in him, so that we can glorify him, so that we can be like him, to occupy ourselves. I would encourage you to read this little book. It's very short. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. I've probably mentioned it to you before, written by someone named Brother Lawrence. You can get it online. You can probably get it as a PDF for free right on your phone. You could read it just even in probably an hour this afternoon and then come back to it over and over again. It's a fantastic little book because it reminds us of this kind of occupation that we're called to as Christians. Listen to just a little snippet from the book. Maybe it'll whet your appetite and you'll get it and read through the rest. He says, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great happiness. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. You know, throughout every sermon, hopefully there are those little moments where either the Holy Spirit brings to mind this question, is that you? In every sermon, there should be some kind of self-reflection happening for all of us. When we come to a a moment like this, when we, we hear this direction, occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God, it's a chance for us to think, is that my life? Is this a direction I need to move in? How can I change in this way? I hope that you will answer that question today. I hope that you will take time. If you know, there's still time. You don't have to start all of your resolutions on day one. You can start in March. Be thinking now even about what kind of changes are needed so that you and I can be like this. And this is really the last use of our text. We said that we need to be happy. We need to be holy. And we need to be priests by turning every moment into an occasion for happy holiness. Every moment. If you're lacking some direction for this year, that would be a good banner right there. Let me turn every moment into an occasion for happy holiness. Of course, we need God's grace. We need to ask him for his help. We need to be ever dependent upon him. We need to be active together in our church or wherever you go to church. You cannot and are not intended to do this alone. It doesn't work that way. We are a family. We are a priesthood. And we want to be that together. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I can give you just uh, maybe three more pastoral directions as you begin a new year. If you are still considering what some call resolutions or goals or objectives for your year, but not sure how to set that out, perhaps you could do it this way as we're trying to do it in our family uh, with, with those in our home. Three 
two, one. First, could you think and plan with God's help three measurable objectives that will help you maintain focus? These are measurable, could be spiritual, could be some other area of your life objective that you can measure throughout the year. It's the kind of thing that you could say, okay, I think I'm 30% there to my objective. Three of those, three measurable objectives to maintain focus. Two, two accomplishments to glorify the Lord. Those would be things that you can't really measure in getting there, but you know when they've happened. It's something that you would like to accomplish. It could be that you want to, for the first time, read the Bible through this year. I would encourage all of us, whether you have done this before or not, to begin a habit of regular Bible reading and prayer. Even just carve out 25 minutes of your day in the morning or evening or lunchtime, whenever works for you, 25 minutes of Bible reading and praying for yourself, for your family, for your church, for your community. Perhaps that would be an accomplishment to work through the Bible in that way over the course of the year. Two accomplishments like that. And then one spiritual direction to pursue for increasing gladness in Christ. Perhaps you'll take some direction here from this sermon or text, and you'll say, that's the direction I need to go in. I'm going to pursue that direction this year. Well, write that down. Keep a note before you. Put it on the bathroom mirror, on the dashboard of your car where it's in front of you. Some spiritual direction that you can pursue. And of course, all along the way, we want to be happy, holy priests of God, ambassadors of Christ to the world around us. We pray this year that the Lord will give us grace. We know that he will. He's abounding in grace and mercy for us. And so we'll ask him again now. Let me invite you to stand as we pray and then sing again. Ask him. We're going to ask him for that grace and mercy that he would help us. Starting a new year can be exciting. Starting a new year can be daunting. Starting a new year can be regretful because of how things went the previous year. We need God's help today. Let's pray. Our Father, we begin this new year with this wonderful focus from your word on the happiness that we can have in you by knowing the happiness that you have in us because of Christ. And to be reminded of the holiness that you intend for us to to show the world and to magnify your goodness to us in the way that we live. God, we pray that you would help us in every way to be holy, to pursue holiness by pursuing our happiness in you and by pursuing happiness, pursuing happiness by pursuing your holiness and conforming us to the image of your son. And God, we pray that you would help us to be busying or occupying ourselves with the things that are most important in the coming year. Make us focused. Give us a a cheerful focus upon the direction you are taking us as a church. You're taking us as your people and help us to, to give all that we are to your plans for the world, to enjoy them and to know them, to be useful to you. And we pray this as we sing again in Jesus' name. Amen.